Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host Anukriti Randev. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at the rate beyond underscore headlines. That is B Y O N D underscore headlines. The COVID-19 pandemic has undoubtedly shaken healthcare systems around the world, many of which have already been struggling since pre-pandemic times. This is no different in Canada. The World Health Organization argues that digital healthcare has the potential to improve medical diagnosis, database treatment decisions, digital therapeutics, clinical trials among other benefits. Notwithstanding these promises, there are concerns surrounding privacy, accessibility and scalability. Fabian talks to Dr. Onil Bhattacharya from the Women's College Hospital about digital healthcare trends, implementation challenges as well as policy recommendations. Yashree then talks to Dr. Bhatia about the future of digital healthcare and public trust in the existing system. Our first guest is Dr. Onil Bhattacharya, MD, PhD, who is the Friggin' Blau Chair in Family Medicine Research at Women's College Hospital and Director of the Institute for Health System Solutions and Virtual Care. He is the lead for the Centre for Digital Health Evaluation, funded by the Ministry of Health of Ontario. He practices family medicine and is an associate professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine and the Institute of Health Policy, Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto. He is national co-chair of the Primary and Integrated Healthcare Innovation Network and has been a Harkness Fellow in Healthcare Policy at the Commonwealth Fund in New York City and a Takemi Fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health. Good afternoon, Doctor. Good afternoon. We're joined here today by Dr. Bhattacharya. There are many proponents of digital healthcare, some advocating its adoption due to its potential to improve medical diagnoses, database treatment decisions, digital therapeutics, clinical trials, amongst other benefits. Apart from the treatment and diagnostic potential of digital technology, ICT technologies can also help us with some non-diagnostic tasks such as appointment booking, data management and sharing and many more. Doctor, what is digital healthcare to you and how would you explain it to our listeners who may not be familiar with the subject? So digital health is a broad category of the use of digital tools for the administration and delivery of clinical care, uh, which or sort of for, I guess, medical care, which would include like, you know, self-management, uh, the organization of services, coordination of care, you know, accessing information, as well as uh, you know, routine delivery. So I think you know, sometimes people talk about virtual care, which is a very small, that's the care delivery piece, and digital health uh, is, a, is a broader category. So we understand from your bio sketch that you are extensively involved with digital and virtual healthcare, given your role as director of the Institute for Health System Solution and Virtual Care, as well as you are the lead for the Center for Digital Health Evaluation. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit more about your work and experience with digital healthcare? Sure. So I work at three levels. So within Women's College Hospital, which you know at one point positioned itself as a you know the hospital to keep people out of hospital. Um, I've been working very closely with 
clinical services to evaluate all their virtual care strategies over the last four or five years. Uh, so that's a you know, sort of local task. Then uh, the Ministry of Health of Ontario has contracted with us over the last four years to evaluate a lot of their large investments in digital health. This includes things around patient digital identity, uh, a large program for internet cognitive behavioral therapy as a you know, insured service, um, and remote monitoring, um, COVID, you know, virtual care billing, and uh, so a wide range of things at the provincial level. And then Health Canada um, has given us uh, funding to set up the Canadian Network for Digital Health Evaluation, where we facilitate learning around the impact of digital services and the value of digital care and health investments between provinces. Right. It seems like you have lots of work, you know, on different levels, both the local as well as provincial and federal levels. Could you just share with us some of the most significant trends and uses of digital healthcare to your understanding, you know, currently in practice as well as the works of being implemented? So uh, on the internet, we have lots of resources. We see that um, so the consulting firms have talked about 4P medicine. I think that was PwC. They talked about predictive, preventative, personalized and participatory, as well as other think tanks talking about different ways that digital tools are being utilized to provide better and improve healthcare systems, such as virtual care. They talked about dialogue and maple in Canada. In home care, they talk about Maven Care, which connects seniors who need home care with caregivers as well as providing timely updates to loved ones about how the care is being given. Predictive analytics, they talked about Blue Dot, combining public health and medical expertise with advanced data to anticipate infectious diseases such as COVID, as well as future pandemics, as well as even privacy concerns like MedStack, which reduces the time and cost to build integrated patient-centric healthcare apps, you know, mental health, and the list goes on. So in your experience, what do you think the most significant trends are in digital healthcare? So I think there's a transition. One of the biggest one is really going from, so historically, there's something called the, paradox, the productivity paradox, where large investments in IT take 10 to 20 years to result in increases in productivity. So in healthcare, we're about, you know, if you look at electronic medical records, just over 10 years out in Canada, and in some other areas, maybe we're at 15, but we're not at the stage where routine healthcare has been transformed for fundamentally by these IT solutions. Uh, it's still a little early, unfortunately. There are, you know, individual applications that are either effective or promising, but at a system level, it's still early days. So what's interesting to me is really what are the things that are starting to be taken up and starting to make a difference? And obviously what's in the pipe that is promising. So, you know, an obvious one will be, you know, virtual care. So prior to, you know, March 2020, it was very marginal. The proportion of all outpatient visits that were virtual was minimal. And then it shot up to 80% and then has fluctuated, you know, over the last three years, and we're somewhere between 35% in primary care and over around 75% in psychiatry. So that's a big shift, right? Is that we're separating care in time or in space and sometimes time uh, to take advantage of uh, new ways of providing care. It's had benefits in terms of access, uh, in terms of, you know, scheduling, uh, and particularly geographically, I think we're seeing some important benefits from virtual care. You mentioned Maple and some of these other vendors. They, you know, are useful in the sense that they provide very rapid access to care, but they're not integrated with other services. So I wouldn't consider that to be transformative, but it's, you know, helpful. 
And they go, what's more interesting is the inclusion of virtual and routine services. Uh, now that, again, we're just kind of at the beginning of that. You know, if you think about it, coming back to your question around therapeutics and the diagnostic process, for me as a primary care doctor, there's a bunch of steps, right? There's the triage of incoming requests. There's the prioritization of like, who do I see next and what, you know, and using what modality. Uh, there's the issue of what is the patient's agenda? What problems do I have to deal with in a given visit? How do I address those problems? And then the monitoring of issues after a visit, education, self-management, and then uh, lastly, the coordination of care across the continuum from home care, community services, hospital, and primary care. So digital tools and virtual care are just starting to help with access. They're, you know, facilitating some parts of the diagnostic process, a little bit of the follow-up, uh, but the other parts, coordination and so forth, were, you know, still to come. That's very helpful information. Thank you, doctor. Um, you didn't mention about the productivity paradox, and you talked about how in, in healthcare, it may be a bit more pronounced compared to other industries, for example. Given your role as you know part of the evaluation team, I'm just wondering, how do you evaluate the kind of like efficacy or, you know, of course, because if you're implementing something, someone has to pay for it and you have to convince them that these tools are indeed useful, that, that the utility is there, the use case is there. How do you evaluate that? Um, what kind of measures, metrics do you and your team use as well as how do you make it such that the, the public knows? Because at the end of the day, the funding comes from I would presume government and they have an elected mandate. So of course the public, it's in the public's interest for them to, to, to know as well. So could you share with us some of your the work at your team evaluating these things? Sure. So our general approach is something called the quintupling framework. So we look at patient experience, provider experience, uh, impact on health outcomes for the population, uh, total cost of care, as well as um, equity the distribution of benefits between different groups and particularly the impact on structurally marginalized groups. So any evaluation essentially chooses metrics uh, from all of those uh, different you know, buckets, those different aims. Uh, and also increasingly what we're trying to do is lay up time horizons. Uh, a digital tool often you know, doesn't have much of an impact in this first six months. There's an increase on workload, there's disruptions to workflows, Maybe one or two people see benefit in minor ways, but in year two and year four, we may start to see future benefits. And part of the challenge is like, nobody's gonna invest for four years to before, you know, waiting before they see any benefit. So it's articulating what are the early wins? And then what are the signals that future benefits are possible or are likely to, to you know, uh, be realized? I'm just very curious in terms of, you've said that you work with both local, provincial and federal levels. So I can imagine that the number of stakeholders are, are quite large. So how do you kind of communicate with them, given that, you know, the kind of electoral intervals are quite different, the terms of government are quite different, the kind of horizon that you mentioned, you did talk about having early wins, looking at some signals and perhaps trying to extrapolate what kind of having a model to perhaps in a longer term, what kind of results you might see. And what kind of differences are there, you know, when you deal with different levels of government that you find? Sure. So let me take that in two ways, right? So in tech, we often talk about value proposition and specifically value proposition design, right? You're developing any technology, especially in healthcare, fundamentally is embedded in a service. 
So you should evaluate it like a service, right? And so you've got a tool, you've got a team uh, that is involved with the use of that tool and a routine that, you know, routine form of clinical practice or something. And so when you put out a technology, you have a bunch of stakeholders. You've got patients, providers, administrators, payers, and vendors. Every one of these stakeholders has different interests. And there is no one value proposition that fits across all those groups. And in fact, technologies often have benefits for patients and then sometimes to the detriment, you know, like make it easier for patients and harder for dog, you know, providers. Uh, so there's often competing value propositions. So part of the work is to articulate those value propositions. And then for the payer, you've got, you know, that in many ways, the payer perspective is the most important one uh, because that ensures the sustainability and scalability of the, the service is articulating benefits that make sense to them within the timeframes. And so unfortunately, a lot of things that have longer term benefit are not invested in because the upfront cost is too high or it's too much work to get people to, to weigh in or to, to you know adopt it. And so it's just something we, you know, essentially we just have to manage. And often what our work ends up being is managing expectations. The payer often wants benefits that cannot be realized either in the time frame or even the really hard to capture, hard to measure. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Part of an election issue when it comes to voters is the debate about the urban versus rural voters, right? And we see that quite pronounced in certain countries, for example, in, in the US. Um, so, you know, when it comes to population density, one in five Canadians live in rural areas. So it's it's a small amount, but it's not negligible at all. It's 20%. But less than 10% of physicians practice in those areas, in rural areas. And we find that mortality rates following strokes, for example, in rural areas are much higher given than those in urban academic hospitals and higher than the national average. And, and you did mention earlier about geography, right? So what are your thoughts about digital healthcare? You know, it can, it can be quite a big game changer. For example, if someone lives two hours away from the nearest hospital, having wearable devices can really reduce the amount of transport time. And, you know, if, if it's an old person, mobility might be an issue. So doctors might be able to monitor the progress virtually and telemedicine as well. So what are your thoughts on digital healthcare and the implementation for rural communities? So, I mean, I think that's been the, that was the initial use case, right? So in Ontario, we built something called the, or the people built the Ontario Telemedicine Network. That it was a massive network of facilities where people could come in and then, you know, access care from doctors and specialists. So I think historically we've invested in that area and have actually had some benefit, you know, um, but we can do much more than we've done historically now. Uh, part of it, you know, requires some better access to broadband and the use of different, um, you know, all types of devices, voice, video, and text for you know, all modalities to provide care. Um, but I do think this, you know, my hope is that this will be a new, you know, a big new area of focus. So I do, I think you have to like what, you know, you have to consider is what is the local capacity and how do we enhance that capacity? Uh, one of the most promising recent models has been in Ren Renfrew County is uh, near Ottawa, uh, you know, which is an area, again, has very few family doctors. And what they've done is they've allowed for people in, uh, you know, more basically 
the use of virtual care from by doctors to support local care by nurses and uh, emergency medicine or uh, you know emergency medical services so the you know the things you can't do over the phone or video or by text can be done by a person on site who's not necessarily a doctor so there's already been a bit of that but i think what's you know the possibility now is to articulate a standard for access and then dis- you know, allow regions to develop different approaches to maintain that standard of access, which could include remote monitoring, as you've described, as well as a range of support for public, you know, personal support workers, EMS, and nurses. Uh, And I think we're at the beginning of doing this in a sophisticated regional way. And there's a few things missing. But one I will, you know, uh, mention, uh, and you talked about it a little bit at the beginning, is the predictive analytics. So if you could identify the needs of a population, risk stratify, and then provide appropriate level of service based on someone's clinical need, uh, that would allow you to organize services regionally in a way that's much more appropriate and sophisticated than what we've done historically. I think you raised a really good point when you talk about local capacity. And I think many of us would recall during the COVID pandemic when testing was an issue. So we first started off with on-site testing, and then we realized that we can't have people test themselves. And then, of course, lies the issue of trust. So I recall when I was studying in England, and if I have to travel back to England, I have to take a picture of my test and send it to a third-party provider for them to verify that indeed the second line, the test line, hasn't appeared and you can travel back to England. But when I was in Singapore, that's where I'm from, it was much stricter. So you have to be on a webcam with someone who's not necessarily a, a doctor or a nurse, just someone to make sure that you are placing the swaps where you're supposed to be and not tempering with it. So we see that there's lots of use case for ICT technologies in digital and in medicine, not necessarily in a way that really taps on doctors and nurses, but also other allied health professionals or volunteers even. I think it's really interesting because the Canadian Medical Association, CMA, they did a survey and they found that 91% of Canadian patients were satisfied using virtual care, with close to half stating that they prefer you know, a virtual method as a first point of contact. But this lies the question with digital tools. Some people actually have concerns that amongst the public, both in Canada as well globally, that digital healthcare may pose some risks. Some of these concerns include that of privacy as well as data security, how your health data is being managed. It's a very sensitive topic, is you know patient confidentiality. What are your thoughts about this? Do you think these concerns are reasonable or are they fear-mongering? Are they conspiracy theories? How do you think policymakers as well as health providers such as yourself should address them? So I mean everything comes back to risk and benefit, right? In the last five, ten years, People gave away all kinds of information to Facebook because it was, I don't know, they seemed useful that like what they got in exchange seemed worthwhile. And I don't know if they always thought about what they were giving away. And in my experience, you know, thus far working with patients, and we were closely with a group called the Patient Advisors Network on a lot of our projects, that people generally assume that information is shared much more widely than it is, in fact. We have all kinds of information silos in healthcare that, as far as I can tell, mostly, you know, work to the detriment of healthcare itself, uh, you know, between institutions and so forth. So the way privacy and security has been articulated is not really 
to advance the public good, but more to like, you know, minimize medical legal risk. Uh, so I think historically, we, I'm not sure that we've had a good, you know, necessarily been in the right spot uh, with respect to this, because it's never been articulated as a risk and benefit calculation, because the benefit was not just never described, only the risk. More recently, when we think about, you know, the, the bigger risks are, you know, the risks of cybersecurity breaches and ransomware and hospitals getting shut down. So that's something that, you know, did rise during COVID. Uh, and we are in some ways creating vulnerabilities as we go to more integrated delivery systems. But again, there's benefit to doing that. And I think it's probably worth doing. But obviously, we need to invest in a security infrastructure that, that would, there's a cost there, but the benefit will be the integration of healthcare or health information to better support the delivery of care. For those who just tuned in, you're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Fabian Xiao. And I'm joined by Dr. O'Neill Bhattacharya from the Women's College Hospital in Toronto for a conversation about digital healthcare innovations, as well as their challenges, particularly public trust. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly public affairs talk show that airs every Monday at 11am on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, online through our website and across podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have you enjoyed the conversation so far? Want to add your voice? Send us a tweet at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Right. Um, some would actually argue that these security frameworks and systems, they already exist. There are certain softwares out there that can help protect industry standard. Uh, you know, we're happy to pay with Apple Pay, Google Pay with our phones. Why is it not an issue there? But it's an issue when it comes to our health data. You know, some people would argue that when the government's involved, it's a different game. If I wear my Apple Watch to sleep, I don't mind telling Apple how many hours I sleep a night. But, you know, if I'm telling the government how many hours of sleep I have a night, there might be a game change. So do you think that it's an issue with communication with the government or, or whoever that's providing the service and telling them that these are the mitigating measures that we are taking, that it would not be shared beyond these people for these particular users? Do you think it's an issue of communication then? I mean, to some extent, but I, I mean, I think part of it is the information framework has been based on healthcare providers being the health information custodian, which is really a flawed framework. So all the institutions, I'm in a hospital, we own the data for all these patients, but really a patient sees care in multiple places and ultimately probably should be the custodian of their own information because no one has a more, you know, no one is more interested in the aggregate of every test that's ever been done in their lifetime. And that data set doesn't exist because it's distributed by across a bunch of institutions that control that data. So part of it is just a framework for around health information custodianship or stewardship that is flawed, right? That we need to move away from. And then, yeah, there's a things, there's issues of public trust, I think, that you're getting at that are legit. I don't know why you'd trust Apple more than, you know, the Ontario government, but that's, that's a separate issue. Um, but I do think we're moving in that direction. Some of the new framework will probably lead to systems where patients are the custodians of their own information and then, you know, have a set of implicit, sh- like you implicitly share with these groups, but it will, that will enable patient-centered systems or person-centered systems, as well as the integration of care that's been eluding us for, you know, since the start of healthcare, really. Uh, I guess we didn't need it when you only had a, a country doctor, 
But now that we have sophisticated systems with many multiple levels, this has eluded us, right? And we, we, it's within our grasp probably within the next decade. Yeah, I think one of the most poignant examples of public trust in digital healthcare, perhaps not necessarily healthcare, but a health-related tool, um, could be contact tracing during the pandemic when it comes to knowing the people that you've been around who are on the same app, for example. People find it unsettling. For example, in Singapore, we had a contact tracing app and the government made it really clear that it's not going to be identifiable information. It's just in terms of geographical distance proximity. And people were still unhappy about that. Luckily in Singapore, the um, level of public trust is pretty high. And so it wasn't as much of an issue compared to other jurisdictions. But at the same time, it's quite difficult for governments to predict every single possible scenario. So there was an example where they said that they would not be sharing the information past the Ministry of Health, for example, but they forgot that there is a law that supersedes that, which is when it comes to crime and serious crimes, any information can be used by the police. And so this, of course, became a public comms issue, which Parliament had to address eventually and legislate on that. So I can understand that it's a part of a, a legal framework, it's part of an information framework, but it is very difficult at, a, at the same time to predict every possible scenario that might happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, uh, it's, you, you know, given a very interesting case. So there's the Singapore example, I mean, in mainland China, you know, they just like controlled your movement based on, you know, whether you had the type of pass you had. Uh, and in, you know, Sweden, they didn't introduce, you know, they didn't have much restriction at all, right? Uh, so, I mean, what COVID, I think, taught us is that ideally, you have a system that's aligned with the values of the public. And when they're not aligned, obviously, people, you know, <laughs> it led to rioting and whatever, any number of, uh, you know, pu public unrest. But it, it, you know, it's an excellent point. It's like, how systems are all going to look different because the value systems of different countries and societies are different. And what people aspire to is different. I think the challenge that, you know, so you articulate that, or you mentioned that we can't predict all these scenarios, but also I don't know that we are consistently eliciting the preferences of the public and designing systems to align with those preferences. That piece of kind of participative engagement and co-design of systems, that's been very weak, actually in most jurisdictions, right? So I think digital health creates an opportunity to do that. The tools allow broad participation and you can iterate such that you land on solutions that hopefully align with what people are looking for. How do you think the data can be used in a way that it's really for the public interest and that to reduce the kind of biases? Because you don't want to reinforce certain stigmas or stereotypes about certain areas, because certain areas might be particularly associated with, for example, migrant communities. Yeah. So, I mean, I think like the current system is mostly like historical budget. So your budget is renewed based on what you spent last year, plus 3% for inflation or whatever. Right. So that baseline is highly inequitable. So you're working from a baseline that's inequitable and not based on, you know, need at all. And need evolves over time. Like, you know, the city of Brampton has grown immensely, but, you know, health services haven't kept up. So it's hard to imagine that things would get worse, right? Like essentially what we would do is bring a lens or, you know, like start to allocate needs somewhere close or allocate services and capacity something somewhere closer to need. And there is like the geographic imbalance is hard to correct. First of all, doctors are private contractors. They can work anywhere they like. So that it's hard to like push them. You could obviously pay them different differentially, but you know, if you work up North, uh, like in the Arctic, you can make $400,000 a year and you get a free house and you get a lot of holiday and they still can't fill the spots. 
So, so it's like, it's not like money is going to solve the problem, but this nuance of understanding need, planning, building and designing services to meet those needs, I think is huge potential. And I, the kind of like biased algorithms creating more bias, obviously, yes, that's a risk, but the baseline is so poor that I, I, I'd be surprised it would get making things worse. That's indeed very true. Another thing that you mentioned is you could have the best digital tools out there, but the key word perhaps is integration, trying to pull together different providers. Let's say people are mobile, just because I'm in Ontario at the moment doesn't mean I might not want to go to, to BC. And because of the disjointed system where different provinces might not speak together, perhaps that, that is a big issue that, you know, you could have the best technology available, but without integration, it's for naught. So what kind of recommendations do you have for policymakers, perhaps if it's not too much to ask on different levels? Sure. So I think, you know, one of them is to think about what, you know, how much of this is a trade and service issue versus a healthcare issue. And so, you know, standards for interoperability and the technical specifications of an electronic medical record that is owned by, an, you know, built by an American company or a Canadian company that operates in 13 provinces, it doesn't make sense for that to be a provincial issue. Fundamentally, those are trade and service issues, right? So there are certain things that I think provinces could step away from. It's like obviously a little challenging, but you can't solve, like, who, you know, governments don't build technology. Technologies are built by companies. Companies need scale. And in Canada, scale means multiple provinces. And they're not going to make a built in, they're built in two, you know, they're not going to build one technology for Alberta and one for Quebec and one for Ontario. Forget it, right? And then an American company is building it for the US context and they'll give you whatever they, whatever they have, not what you want, right? So the idea that we could articulate at a national level certain set of standards for tools and interoperability and usability and so forth, uh, that would be, a, that's an easy one, I think. Right. Um, the other area is in the area of licensure or portability. So the portability provision is in the Canada Health Act. We could be more rigorous about that. And you could imagine students like yourself who live in one province or, you know, are resident of one province and study in another province should have seamless access in both locations. You know, provincial licensure is probably going to be on the table. Or national licensure is probably going to be on the table, as you noted, maybe. Uh, Doug Ford recently said, oh, yeah, we're, we're you know, open for business. Anyone from anywhere can come or go. And virtual is going to enable that. Yeah, there's also been talk, there was a report um, in 2019 by Essentia, the consulting firm. One of the recommendations is that government should establish fee structures that fairly compensate physicians for remote and virtual services and to provide for stronger accessibility and portability. So I think what you've shared is like spot on. Are there any you know, last messages you'd like to share for our listeners? Well, you know, just to say that this is the beginning, you know, we're 15 years out and now is the beginning of where we see digital transformation and that it's something that shouldn't be left to providers and different interested groups, but actually should be something that the public engages in. And I think, you know, people of your generation and students will be very engaged consumers of healthcare in the future. And now is a chance to step up and be part of building the system that will take care of you across the life course. I look forward to doing that with my you know, counterparts. Thank you so much for your time, Doctor. Um, it was really a pleasure to talk to you and you know the insights you've provided. Don't think we can get it elsewhere. We look forward to listening to you on our next radio show. Thank you. All right. Thank you. 
Once again, that was Dr. O'Neill Bhattacharya, who joined us for a discussion on public trust in digital healthcare. Thank you for tuning in to Beyond the Headlines. Don't forget you can join us in the conversation by sending us a tweet on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Checking out our website, www.beyondtheheadlines.net or by following us on Instagram at Beyond Headlines. Our next guest is Dr. Sasha Bhatia. Dr. Bhatia helps lead Ontario Health's work to support the implementation of Ontario Health teams, enabling a better integrated health system backed by evidence-based tools and digital technology. He is also responsible for the development of new models of care, the expansion of virtual care, and Ontario Health's collaboration with primary care partners focused on the social determinants of health. Before joining Ontario Health, Sasha was Chief Medical Innovation Officer and Interim Executive Lead of Academics at Women's College Hospital. He is also a staff cardiologist at University Health Network, a scientist at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto. He has also published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers in prestigious international journals. Hi, Sasha. Welcome to Beyond the Headlines. We are very grateful to have you on this episode to continue our conversation on public trust in digital healthcare. Well, um, uh, it's great to be here, Yashri. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Okay, so then let's just dive into the questions then. So my first question is, uh, given your experience of working on implementing a better integrated health system and digital technology, what would you say is the biggest challenge? Is it public trust in such a system or is it the cost and efficiency associated mm -hmm. or is it implementation by healthcare providers and policymakers? That's a great question. Um, I think it's probably a little uh, all of the above. I, you know, I think the challenge, I mean, the greatest challenge I would say is um, digital healthcare, you know, and new ways of doing things isn't really about the technology itself. It's really about service redesign and service redesign in healthcare is incredibly difficult. And, and part of the reason that it's difficult is because uh, healthcare tends to be an industry um, that is slow moving in terms of, uh, you know, innovation. And people, when, when I say that, people are, are often puzzled by that because they're like, we see all of these amazing innovations in medicine and, and science and, you know, uh, vaccines and therapeutics and and all of that stuff is is true um but uh you know when you think about the way that we deliver services in 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 healthcare in medicine right much of uh what we've done like the physical examination the visit with the doctor i mean that's been going on for hundreds of years in in effectively an unchanged sort of way and and so what virtual care and digital technology has done is actually fundamentally questioned the paradigm of uh, the way that we as practitioners and as a system view the uh, engagement or interaction uh, with patients and the way that we think about diagnosis and treatment of those patients. And so, so it's that service paradigm shift that I think is probably the, the biggest challenge to wrap our mind around uh, when it comes to implementing uh, new technologies. 
I feel like that's the perfect segue to like my next question. So my next question was just going to be that how do you think we could build like the public's trust in a digital healthcare system, especially when there are a lot of people who prefer that generic way of going to the doctor's office and getting checked and they don't believe that a virtual doctor's visit may have like a similar impact or if the diagnosis would be correct. So how do we get past that? Well, you know, they may not be wrong. And, and so I think the first piece of this is to recognize that digital or virtual healthcare is just one piece of a of a multifaceted puzzle, right? Um, and and multifaceted solutions. So I always use sort of the banking analogy as a you know potential industry comparison. So you're probably too young to remember this, but you know people used to have to go to the bank. Uh, to pay their bills and, you know, to take out money and to deposit a check. And now, you know, over time, we've introduced a variety of different channels um, that allow for uh, people to, uh, you know, do different things. So, you know, and, and that has not been something that has happened immediately. It has taken a long period of time to do it. Uh, I'm sure the first time that somebody went to an ATM, they were a little skeptical about what is this, you know, this this computer that's going to spit out money. Is it going to be the same as a teller? And I know that when we started to do things like online banking and some of those other things, there was a lot of skepticism around, is this going to actually replace the human interaction that you have when you go to the bank? But what's really important about what the banking industry did, which I think is maybe analogous in healthcare is they they appropriately channeled where certain services would go uh, and bounded them both by convenience and by risk. And so what I mean by that is this, we know intuitively now what services we can do in what channel at a bank. And it's not everything. So as an example, I know that I can deposit a check using my, my phone. I know that I can go to a, uh, a bank machine to withdraw money, but I know that I can't get a mortgage online. I actually have to go to the bank in person. If I want to take out like $10,000, I can't do that at an ATM. I actually need to go to the bank uh, branch and do it uh, myself. And there are certain things that I can only do at my home branch because they have greater degrees of information about me. Why that matters is because the bank is doing that not to limit your convenience, but to balance the risk benefit of convenience versus the actual risk of things like fraud and other sorts of uh, dangerous circumstances. The same concept has to apply, and you could imagine it should apply in healthcare. So as an example, you know, there is a world where, you know, having a virtual appointment with a doctor for mild ailments makes sense. There's a world where um, you don't even need to see the person online. I can actually talk to them over the telephone and much of the uh, information uh, I think uh, and, and, and treatment plan could be initiated on the phone. That's totally fine. There are ways in which in fact, you may not even need to speak to a doctor. Maybe asynchronous messaging like text message or email would actually make sense to engage in a treatment plan. But you would never want to get a diagnosis of cancer by any one of those methodologies, right? That's a conversation that needs to happen in person, in, like 
you know, right with a person beside you who can hold your hand, who can just, you can have empathy and talk about some of the challenges and, and then your treatment plan, give you reassurance, et cetera, et cetera. And so my point being is a big part of how we build trust in the system is we actually figure out when is it appropriate to do, to use which channel at what time. And, and ultimately it is that appropriateness and the guardrails around how we use technology that will ultimately build trust uh, in patients being comfortable uh, in what I would consider and hope that we will consider a multi-channel healthcare universe. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the the way that you said it, that like it depends on a different situation and that there are different channels, especially like in healthcare. And like you said, uh, I agree, like if it's a normal ailment, if it's the flu or something of that sort, there's a much easier possibility that you can, you know, talk to someone on the phone or like with text messaging. It's just way easier to like reach more people, I guess, in that way. So then moving on to the next question, where do you think Canada stands in implementing these new and innovative digital healthcare technologies? And where would you think that we may still need to improve or like what are some of like the problems that we're still facing? It's a a great question. Um, So I guess, uh, you know, I would say pre-pandemic, Canada was really, um, I would say, sort of very middling and probably behind. Uh, a number of countries in terms of our use of technology. We, as adopters of virtual care, as an example, telemedicine is another term for it. We were pretty, we were, we were pretty lagging. Uh, less than one percent of our total volume in Ontario, for example, was was virtual. In the pandemic, we saw explosive levels of uh, virtual care. At its height, seventy percent of our visits were virtual. This was way back uh, in March and April of 2020, when the pandemic was sort of like very new. And that was because we did two things. One is we paid for it. We opened up billing codes that allowed for virtual care. The second was because we uh, were technology agnostic. So we didn't require practitioners to buy expensive technology, to adopt expensive technology. We said, you could uh, use the telephone, you could use Zoom, you could use these other these other features. So the ease of utilization combined with pay billing codes, I think, created massive adoption. In fact, Canada was actually a world leader and is uh, consistently still uh, a, a higher than average utilizer of virtual care. In fact, we did a study uh, in JAMA that demonstrated that compared to two other countries, Australia and the United States, which are comparator countries, Canada did a higher degree of virtual care than the other two countries. Now that has, that has, now I want to clarify that has actually probably come down quite a bit as, you know, as it probably should, as the world has opened up a little bit more and we have vaccines. Um, And then the other caveat to that is, so we've done well, but the other caveat is a lot of that virtualization really was very um, focused in on the physician patient visit. So we paid for, like an interaction that you would have when you go to the doctor. What we didn't do, I think, and where there is opportunity to to probably grow even further is to really explore uh, innovative delivery models that actually like increase efficiency. Because, you know, whether you talk to somebody on the phone or Zoom or in person, it's not like you're saving a whole ton of time. It's still a synchronous interaction. But things that actually like, will save time and efficiency 
are going to be models of asynchronous communication, text message, email even, secure messaging functions, where you're able to do things like, and we have a little bit of this, where teledermatology, where you take a picture of a rash, you upload it to a server, uh, a dermatologist takes a look at it and provides you back with a diagnosis and a treatment plan. There's a little bit of that going on. There's more that, again, we could be doing. Uh, remote patient monitoring, something that we are doing in Ontario a little bit more, could do more of, which is sort of managing people at home using technology. So there's these are sorts of the interventions that if we do them correctly, you can get tremendous efficiency gains because it doesn't just require me to be sitting in an office to, to do that. It, we can be managing multiple people and potentially even uh, have physicians supervise other trained healthcare professionals, pharmacists, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants to be managing populations of people, you know, um, again, while using technology. So that that sort of thing is is, is happening in some places. Again, it's, it's, it's pretty sporadic still, but, uh, you know, I think there's more that we could do on that front. Yeah, I agree. And like speaking of the pandemic, I wanted to ask, do you think that like the digital healthcare technologies like have alleviated some of the stresses that the healthcare system had faced during the pandemic and now like slowly when things have started opening up? And do you think that these new technologies have made it easier for people to get access to timely healthcare? Because that is another bigger issue where people have to keep waiting for appointment times and everything. So do you think that it has like really helped with that? So it's a complicated answer. So yes, on FAST, you know, I think virtual healthcare options have increased access. There is no question about that, right? Um, you know, both public and, you know, so-called corporate options have allowed people to get access to care, uh, you know, where there probably wasn't before. And in fact, um, you know, we opened up a service called Health 811, which is a new version of the telehealth line that actually allows people to do an online chat with a nurse, as an example, 24-7. So they don't have to just call the hotline or do have a symptom checker that is AI powered that allows them to sort of get information. All of these things, I think, have been in advances that have improved timely access. What we do know, however, is the type of interaction really matters. And so maybe I'll explain. There was a study, you know, I was an author on recently, um, but was done, uh, you know, looking at virtual care, but comparing virtual care in two models. One model, which is um, people that are connected to a provider, a known provider, and like a bricks and mortar uh, group, and they get virtual visits through them. The second is sort of what we call corporate or standalone virtual care models, right? Where you don't have a relationship with a doctor. You're just, you know, it's a walk-in clinic and you just log in and, and whatnot. Those have proliferated during the pandemic. What we do know is that virtual care delivered by somebody who knows you and knows your history has less visits to the emergency room than a person who just logs into a corporate model. And so the quality of the virtual care matters. And that, to be honest, uh, Yashri, makes intuitive sense, right? Because look, if you say you're my patient and you're like, doc, I've got this issue. And you said, okay, well, let's schedule a virtual visit to discuss it, right? And we had a conversation. 
I know you. I know your history. I have a sense of who you are. Uh, you know, I have your records, right? And uh, I can make a treatment plan because we've met. We have a relationship. So the quality of healthcare fundamentally changes. You can still get the access benefit, but there's the knowing you that matters. If you, on the other hand, don't know me and we're I'm in a, on a corporate virtual care site and I log in and I don't know you and I'm just seeing you as a square, right? And I don't know anything about your history and I don't really know anything. And I have no means, and this is really important, I have no means of following you up. So if you, for example, were um, saying, like I'm a cardiologist, you were saying, uh, you know, I have chest pain. Well, I'd say, okay, we've got to run some tests, but I think I should see you in person, right? Well, if you have a relationship with me, I can do that. If I don't, then what are my options? My options are to say, I think you should go to the emergency room, right? And so, and so the answer is yes, for many things, you know, maybe corporate virtual care, you know, offers access. But I do think quality of visit actually does matter. And the ability to have continuity of care does matter because those two things, for the things that are simple, like an ear infection, sure, you know, great. But what if it's something that's important? What if it's something that requires follow-up? What if it's something that's like, you know, uh, a young woman who has, you know, uh, has, you know, symptoms of a sexually transmitted infection. And you're like, well, I need to do some tests. How are you going to follow those up? So, so again, there, there's a, there's, this is sort of what I mean about the appropriateness of channel, right? Because without that, that's where trust in the public healthcare system or, or trust in, in healthcare arose and trust in these new models arose because people then feel abandoned. Another question that I have then is that personal health information is it's one of the most sensitive types of information about an individual. Mm -hmm. And with digital healthcare systems, data breaches can cause significant like harm to affected individuals. So what mm -hmm. do you think either governments or policymakers or um, healthcare providers can just make sure that no data breaches occur? And that, again, thereby just helping the public trust the system a little bit. So, you know, I would say the first thing is obviously cybersecurity is an issue that, you know, isn't just a healthcare issue. It's an issue in banking. It's an issue in, um, you know, in every industry. And the reality is, is that there's more and more cyber attacks where people are looking for money and uh, often foreign. And there's, you know, and, and that's going to continue. Right. I mean, because it is a way that people know that they can get. Uh, they can they can get ransom money and, and that sort of thing. So better cybersecurity systems. I can tell you the hospitals I work at every day, there are more and more training on cybersecurity attacks with more and more security, cybersecurity being put into place. So I think paramount, paramount, uh, uh, you know, is people have to believe that they can trust the data. I will just put the privacy piece into context a little bit, right? Because first of all, everybody thinks the moment that you digitize things, we're automatically, you know, at risk of privacy breaches. Well, first off, it was never really safe before. So the days, I mean, if you've ever walked into a doctor's office or onto a ward in a hospital, what we used to have was just open charts everywhere. They're literally littered all over the place. And any any person who looks, you know, any person who's like uh, can walk into a ward and open up a chart and 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 actually take a look at your data. And you have no audit function. Now, at the very minimum, every time I go into a patient's chart, my chart can be audited. And there's a paper trail, an electronic trail 
of what I've looked at that person. So in fact, I would say our systems are safer now than they were uh, before. The second is, I think we have to have a grown-up conversation about the balance of risk and benefit around uh, securing personal health information. And so what I mean by that is this. We always hear the bad things about privacy breaches because they're obviously sort of, you hope never events that, you know, when they happen, they get in the press and everyone gets very upset. I'll tell you that the most common thing that happens uh, where it comes to personal health information isn't the data breach. It's actually the issue that a patient walks into an emergency room and says, why don't you have my information about my medications, my allergies or whatever? And restrictive privacy laws, restrictions around the way that we share data prevents a lot of doctors and a lot of other health practitioners from getting timely access to a patient's record, which actually puts the patient at risk. This happens all the time. And I would say that patients, frankly, are much more sophisticated about understanding risk and benefit than I think we give them credit for. And I'll tell you, to be honest, Amazon and Facebook have way more health information on people than I do as a doctor, right? We give information to them freely. We share pictures, we share data about our, you know, a variety of things uh, that we do all the time. And they, and they have it and they sell it and all that kind of stuff. I think what we, so it's not to say that I'm minimizing the privacy question. It is rather to say, I think the privacy question needs to be put into context and it needs, we need to have a grown up conversation about what it means as a, as a, as a citizen and how to use your data appropriately. Because in absence of that conversation, what we have is a constant focus on risk mitigation, which ultimately has its own set of harms associated. So then my last question for you would be, ever since the pandemic, the use of digital healthcare technology um, has increased and has come into the picture, but where do you see the future of digital healthcare going? Yeah, a great question. So I think, I mean, certainly I would say this multi-channel universe that I've sort of mentioned, I think is, is where we are headed. That I think that especially as we move into, you know, uh, models of population health where we manage patients over, over the continuity of their life, going to the doctor every year for an annual physical is going to look very different, right? It could look, you know, it's very plausible, for example, that if you're, you know, you don't have to see a doctor anymore. Maybe you see a nurse sometimes. Maybe you have an email conversation with a physiotherapist. Maybe you go to get tests, people review them, and and maybe their AI, you know, uh, as an initial filter on your health data and says and gives you a, a thumbs up, you know, you're okay. And 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 then, you know, that's reviewed by health the health team, and then that's it. You know, like, I mean, I, again, there's a lots of opportunities, I think, on that sort of multi-channel piece that allows us to become more efficient and perhaps more accurate in the assessment of patients. I think the second is wearable technology. So I see wearable point of care technology becoming a bigger and bigger part of the so-called health and wellness component. Most of wearable technology right now is focused in on the wellness thing. I'm sure people that have an iWatch, like, it's not really providing, you know, I, I, for most people, it provides them interesting data around how fast their heart is going and stuff like that. 
But a lot of my patients, um, you know, use it to track, you know, things like atrial fibrillation or track other arrhythmias. And so as the technology comes more and more sophisticated, wearable technology, I think, will have will play a greater and greater role in both the diagno diagnosis and management of a number of chronic diseases, right? Because I have, again, I say I have a very limited data set. I have only the data when you come into hospital, but there are thousands of, pay of Ontarians out there of which we have zero health data because they're not seeking medical attention, right? Doesn't mean that they don't have disease. It just means that I don't know it because they have never, you know, never been to hospital. So, so I think that piece of it's also, I think, going to be critical on the wearable side. And then finally, I think, you know, more generally, medicine is going to play into more of a team-based sport over time. And so, whereas, the and that's not really a technology thing, but it's got to be enabled by technology, meaning that, like, the days of you going to, like, uh, you know, a solo practicing doctor who has, you know, in his office or her office, who kind of wears a white coat, and comes out and you see that and it's very traditional, I think is probably going by the wayside. And you're going to rather see sort of team-based care. And that team will be enabled at the back end by technology and probably enabled by AI. And so, um, so when you add up all of those things, you know, it will have to be a situation that, um, again, less and less you know, Yashri, you have me as a doctor, more and more you have my, a care team of which I am a member. Just wanted to say that thank you so much for spending time with us and having this conversation with me. I definitely learned a lot about digital healthcare and the implementation of these new technologies. And I'm definitely sure that our listeners would benefit from it as well. Thanks so much, Yashri. Really appreciate the conversation. It was fun. Once again, that was Dr. Sasha Bhatia, who joined us for a discussion on building public trust in digital healthcare. Thank you for tuning in for Beyond the Headlines. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our episode for this week. We were joined today by Dr. Onil Bhattacharya and Dr. Bhatia. Many thanks to them for coming onto the show to discuss the future of digital healthcare in Canada and trends and issues associated with its integration. Today's show was produced by myself, Anukriti Randev, alongside my co-producers, Fabian and Yashri Sharma. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you are listening. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you are a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at the rate beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airways.